Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is more learning about people and it is learning about games design. But it's that people don't give kids enough credit. Yeah. Um, I see a lot of people saying, oh, I've got a, you know, nine or 10 year old kid and what games are good for 10 year olds? I'm like, the answer is all games are good for 10 year olds. <laughs> like, my kids can, like, by 10, they were like playing Star Wars Rebellion on their own. You yeah. Know? Like, and, and I know. But that's not me like boasting about my kids being smart or anything. It's just they got gaming early. They get it. They're inspired by it. They're excited by it. They're competitive and they can play any game. I finally got a chance to talk to someone involved with the adored RPG Slay Industries. And I learned why Slay Industries fans are so passionate. We learn about Shep's work as a younger man at Games Workshop and its influence on him becoming a creator. Make sure to listen for his view on kids and their capabilities as gamers. We talk D&D and you'll want to hear his feelings about the game. The reasons why he loves sci-fi but isn't a big fantasy fan is interesting. And lastly, we talk about his new solo RPG, Rectify, which is provocative and unique to say the least. Now, the sole reason I can spend hours to bring you interviews like this is because of the support I get from my patrons on Patreon. So big thanks goes out to the most recent patrons and floorheads. Thank you, Harmony Bat, Troy Banks, Kevin Greenlee, Michael S. Miller, Jay Fable 3, and Jake from Faded Quill Gaming. All right, sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Shep. This is Sean. And this is Savvy. And together we're a couple of Drakes, the creators of Court of Blades and Zed Bell. When we're not writing games, we're listening to Tabletop Talk. Talk. Toppy Talk Talk. <laughs> you want to try that again? <laughs> when we're not writing games, we're listening to Tabletop Talk. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today I sit down with Chris Shep Shepperson. Shep is a game designer, writer, and publisher from Derby UK. Alongside a day job as a brand manager with Modifius Entertainment, Shep also owns and runs Hanser Publishing, an outlet for his own passion projects and creations, most notably the Gaia Complex and the upcoming solo horror RPG Rectify. So Shep, welcome to the third floor. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me on. It's, um, it's great to be here. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to, to chat about some bits and pieces. Yeah, it, um, it, it was a no brainer for me. Um, I've had my left eye on Gaia for a while. And uh, Anthony Boyd is a mutual for us. And as soon as Anthony says, hey, Craig, you need to talk to Shep. I was like, yep, no brainer. Let me find him. Let's get him on here. Um, so, all right. I know that you have done this a million times on podcasts, but I'm going to ask you to do it one more time for me, which is I need you to take you back in time. So there was a time, Shep, you knew nothing about board games. You knew nothing about role playing games. uh, And then suddenly someone put a sheet of paper in front of you and a pencil and a couple dice and you played your first RPG. Can we go back to that moment? So my introduction to gaming beyond um, 
traditional family board games. Um, actually, RPGs came second, although they 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 followed quite quickly um, after Warhammer. So it all started with with war with wargaming. I'm from Nottingham originally in the UK, which is the home of Games Workshop. Yeah. And if you were a kid growing up in the 80s and 90s, and you like you either um, played Warhammer or you despised people that played Warhammer, <laughs> right? Like that, that was the two sides like of the coin. And so I um, I played Warhammer. Uh, so I discovered that through a friend's older brother. So we were probably I don't know, like the first year of secondary school over here. And I don't know how old, I'd have been like 12, 11 mm-hmm. or 12 years old. And a friend's older brother who was maybe like 15, 16. I know we'd go around, just kind of play on a Sega Master System or whatever it might have been back then. <laughs> and uh, he'd have been sat there like, you know, painting these miniatures. And we, I was like engrossed. And then eventually my my friend, his, his brother forced him into, into playing uh warhammer with him and eventually i started playing and i was hooked you know like 12 13 years old like that was that just became my my life and then probably i don't know maybe a year later uh, and we'd like slowly infecting other people at school to get them to come and play with us as well and uh, eventually um a friend of mine was like oh my my um my older brother who's like at 18 now or something he started role-playing and we were like what the hell is that so uh he's like i'll oh, just come around and we can have a look at some of his books and he had um first edition shadow run nice core book so i remember going through it and finding art oh, awesome and then we tried to like we tried to play it and like the rules and like it's it was a bit like, you played first edition shadow and like it was like not very uh accessible yeah. to a younger gamer's mind at that point in time but um then we kind of like we were really keen on the idea and it ended up that back then in the uk there was the 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 rpga the role play game association and um they had a club in nottingham that met every other sunday for like four hours and wow. we just like went went along as a group like i think they thought we were just some like you know gang of youths come to raid the place <laughs> and we were like there was like three tables in an old scouts hut um and there we were like how we like how we we know people that role play we've seen like shadow run and we didn't really like it like what else is there uh, and they were like oh well these people here are playing uh vampire and those people over there are playing cyberpunk 2020 and those people over there are playing slay industries so we were like, okay, can, can we try all of them in the same day? <laughs> it doesn't really work like that. But, uh, so we, we, um, so, and then the rest is history, really. We started going regularly and we slowly rotated. Like we just kind of played and got our characters killed really quick so we could move on to the next game and try that out. And, um, uh, and yeah, for many years, through my teenage years, like that was it, wargaming and... Uh, role playing was just like what we did in the evenings and at the weekends and summer holidays came and we would like someone would work out a campaign and we'd just like hang out at somebody's house and play for like seven days straight it's like oh, the glory the days of yeah. role playing and I, you know i remember like that was back when like cyberpunk 2020 was churning out like you know like three bucks a month yeah and it was just so much content and but you know and it was all the black and white art era and it was it was great. Like, you know, it was really fun. And, I, and we discovered what else we've got. Innominate, mm. uh, Conspiracy X, 
Um, like, and then we moved on to, you know, vamp- from Vampire to Werewolf and Changeling and Wraith and Mage. And, um, and then I, I distinctly remember about two years later, it was at the, this, the RPGA club that one guy was like, if you guys ever tried live action role playing, Oh, we interesting. Like, oh, really? And he goes, yeah, yeah. Like we're playing vampire now. And he goes, we, we meet at this, um, this pub in, in, in town. He's like, I know like you're not really old enough to be in there, but I'm sure we can people. It was a bit more relaxed back then, right? In the nineties, there was a place called, uh, oh man, the Imperial. And it was uh, supposed to be a Russian bar and they sold like, it was every beer came in two pint glasses and um like they just had vodka or beer like that that was the choices and we we used to we went down there and we started vampire uh live action role playing and we like we didn't we didn't really get it yeah but we were really excited to be with a group of people that helped us sneak into a pub so (laughs) we we were like we used to go for the drink you know like somebody like yeah we'll get your beer brilliant you know we were like i don't know like 16 sure maybe at the time and so i guess we were fairly mature for for 16 year olds but um i mean i'm i'm only five foot four now so how i got away with it back then i have no (laughs) idea Uh, so uh you still get carded i still get carded now yeah and um yeah it was um that was it really and i and i think i lived and breathed the hobby for all through my teenage years. And I eventually in my early twenties, I was like 2021, got a job at games workshop. Nice. Um, head office. I worked for forge world, um, um, at the time. And I worked there for a couple of years and I went to games days around the world for them in the glory days, Mm -hmm. just about when, um, they launched Lord of the Rings and the movies were out. And that was like huge. And then when, Lord of the Rings wasn't huge and exciting anymore. And the shareholders decided to tell us that we couldn't fly me around the world yeah. with a million other people. Uh, I kind of decided to move on a little bit and actually still to this day remains one of my biggest regrets because it was a pretty cool place to work back then. And, uh, and I still got a lot of friends that work there now and, and I've remained a casual gamer all the way through my adult years, you know, casual, the occasional games night with friends and we'd meet up and play Axis and Allies or the odd game of Warhammer. I played in the Blood Bowl League for many years and mm-hmm. I dabbled. I, it, obviously, adult life took over a little bit um, until maybe, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago when I was getting all excited again and dabbling with designing my own games and my now wife was just like, can you please just like run a Kickstarter or do something with them before they just like you spend months and it's on a, just do something with it. And you know, that's when I really started working in the industry again and and built to where I am now. That's exciting. So I've got a ton of questions. Um, let's start going back to the very beginnings here when, um, you know, you're sitting there, you're, you're playing video games, you've got your buddy's brother painting miniatures, uh, and you end up getting sucked into there as an adult looking back. Um, do you have a sense of why Shep that, that just of all the things you were exposed to as a kid, right? Somehow pushing little dials around on the table. And I'm, I'm one of them. I love miniature gaming. What was it that happened then when you look back on it? What was it that just just ignited you? I mean, it's pretty hard to pinpoint, but I think it's probably the same thing 
that I got from video gaming for a while and that I also get from watching like a really good movie and that mm-hmm. is the escape from reality. Like it's the something that's just so impossible to do for myself in real like i can't run around a 41st millennia battlefield with a rocket launcher on my shoulder that's right. never gonna happen but like the the miniatures are exciting and, and i actually like i'm actually a pretty good miniatures painter i'm slow but mm-hmm. i'm pretty good but i've always been i've always been a player first and a hobbyist second yeah like i know a lot of people they live and breathe for that they love the building and the yeah. I, I like to play games like i go through bursts where i can where i want to pick up the paintbrush a lot and but for the general thing at the time i was all about just playing games having mm-hmm. fun like and i think back then like maybe i just kind of wanted to feel like a kid for a bit longer yeah. you know like growing up a bit too fast and um and it was like, man, I can play these games and adults want to play them as well. Like, that must be cool. Like, people that are older than me, right. like my friend's older brothers, they're, like, doing this. And they seem like cool people. Mm-hmm. So maybe this is, like, the next step. Like, video games are, like, one thing. And then the wargaming is, like, the cool thing, yeah? So, yeah, I don't know if I was following a trend or if I was just kind of a bit of, you know, stepping into my the footsteps of my peers or what it was, but there was something about it that was exciting. It captured my imagination, you know, and, um, yeah. And I just felt like very shortly after we started playing Warhammer and we'd go to the local, um, games workshop store, which was on uh, Friar lane in Nottingham. And, um, shortly after we started doing that, like I felt like I was part of a community. Yeah. Like I was like a 14 year old kid who could go into a store in a city center and the store manager would like acknowledge me by name. And like, like if I go to a games workshop store now, like it does my head in, you know, they're like, Hey, what are you painting? What are you building? Like, what are you working let, on? Me buy, let me buy some minis and leave please. But, um, back then, like I, I understand why they do it because yeah. they had such an impact on me as a, as a child, as an early teen being like, these people are so interested in me. They're yeah. so kind. And this hobby is awesome. And like that, it was that was really what did it for me. Like people being older than me, being excited about what it was like, it was, it was a brilliant feeling. What's funny about that Shep is that, um, I don't feel like enough people acknowledge that aspect of it. Um, you know, people talk about, you know, I love the strategy of it, or I like the hobby, the building and, and, you know, you know, putting together the perfect list. I suspect that there's a lot of people like you, cause I was one of them. One of the things that drew me to war gaming and eventually RPGs or returning to RPGs is the community, right? And that feeling that you're a part of something. And, and, and I think about it, especially at the age you, cause I was much older, but at the age you were in, that had to have been huge just to, to acknowledge it. Yeah, it was. And you know, like it really helped me. And I think many children, um, come out of themselves mm. when they go to a event or a games night and they play with strangers they are engaging with other people with a like-minded hobby that can be huge i mean I, i've got two boys myself now who are 11 and, and 13 and um well i have forced gaming down their throats since they were old enough to walk <laughs> and um 
that you know i took um i, I we get to a monthly um netrunner um gaming event like they, yeah. they i got them playing netrunner when they were like eight and nine <clears throat> and they've been and they've they the, the youngest i think he was nine or ten at the time he won a play matter and if only came like top three people are like how do kids understand this game and i'm like people don't give kids enough credit but yeah. also you've come along and you sat at tables through the course of the evening with 30 year olds who have spoke to him on on a mature level right. and given him an opportunity to show that he's got something to say he's got something away. he's not just a kid and that's so empowering to see yeah. that happening that you know i i can i can see that happening to me that's exactly what happened to me going into games workshop stores mm-hmm. in the 90s so yeah absolutely community is everything so i've got a similar origin story i think it was i mean i played role-playing games um but i really the first time i got just elbow deep in a hobby was definitely war gaming and it was similar to you seeing it was for me, it was college, but I'm um, seeing, you know, people playing uh, war games. Um, so we share that. Right. And I get into RPGs. I love love running games. Um, I love exposing my my daughter to this stuff and her getting into it. My wife uh, has no interest, which is fine. But there's here's what's different between you and I is that some somewhere, somehow you got it in your head that I want to do more than just create a campaign for my table. I want to do more than just GM for my table. I want to start making something for a bigger consumption, something outside of it. Um, do you, do you have a sense of when that instinct stepped in, right? At what point did you say, I, I want to make something? Yeah, that's a hard one. I, I think that was probably when I was employed by games workshop. Um, I think in my teenage years, role-playing started that process for me okay like that whole concept of writing the campaign like i'm a player and even today i'm somebody that doesn't really buy campaign books for rpgs I, i love source material i want the hardware catalog I want the guide to the wilderness. I want the information and I don't want your pre-written adventures. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not that interested because like I can talk a lot and I can spin a story and I like doing that. So role-playing made me realize that I kind of wanted to be a storyteller mm-hmm. of some capacity. I don't know if I'd ever decided I'd have the dedication to like write a novel, but I knew that I wanted to make more and I would, always create new house rules Mm. you know like i would always be like okay there's rules for everything here in cyberpunk 2020 but that aren't rules for parachuting okay or at least not in the books i had i'm we're gonna do something i'm gonna make something new and then everyone be like where'd you get the rules for that and i'd be like i made them and they'll be like brilliant so that like that was always a thing like it was always a thing i always needed to push the boundaries push the limits of the games i was playing when i worked for games workshop i worked for forge world in particular um, i was really in the sales office so forge world was across the road from games workshop head office in its own little building back then it was uh, on a little little retail park called easter park you could see the games workshop building across the road but you had to like run across the road in the pouring rain at lunchtime to use the canteen and stuff and we had like a sales office upstairs and i used to do i used to do take the sales calls and uh, and the like and i also used to be responsible for finding people to paint all our models because the heavy metal team were generally too busy painting the, the main stuff and downstairs right underneath us we had the little development studio and there's some great 
guys down there. They, half of them still work for Games Workshop. And it was just this little cramped room that had like four sculptors and two rules writers and the studio manager, like, like you know, this tiniest room you can imagine. And they were all just biddling away. And, you know, you'd have to go up and downstairs, ask questions. And you'd go in. And every time you'd go in, um, it was Warwick... Warwick Kincaid, I think his name was at the time. He was back then. He was the, the the Imperial Armor rules writer for the Forge World books, and you could just be like, he just, I'd just be like, this guy sitting there all day <laughs> making rules for tanks. This is the best job ever. I have to find a way to get here. Like, right. I have to know how. How do I do this? And and actually, I started we we would just complete i would just go home and i would just convert tanks i was a big miniatures converter back then and i'd be like this is a new thing now i'm gonna have to write the rules and eventually we'd be literally like me and my friends we'd be playing games where like like we just have entire army lists that we just made all the miniatures up for and made all the lists up for and um and i got into rules writing and I, and when that happened something switched in me and i was very focused on like well, we've just tried out our new units, but they're not balanced. Mm-hmm. You know, like there was something in me that was like more than just needing to make something. It was like, now it has to really work. Like right. we have to go back to the drawing board and tweak this. And a lot of my friends were just like, like we're not that interested in doing that yet. We just like want to make something cool. And like, it, it doesn't matter if it's overpowered. And I'm like, no, it matters to me because one day it might be in a book, you know, like there are guys at work. They already put them in the book. You know, everything starts in someone's brain. And this could be so. I am um, yeah. I went down that rabbit hole then of just needing to create. When I left Games Workshop and I went on to do other things, other jobs over the years that were were outside of the gaming industry, I I never stopped tweaking with games designs. And as the industry sort of swung over the last you know fifteen twenty years, mm-hmm. and the board gaming industry kind of grew. Um, and I kind of started playing a lot more board games. You know, everybody picked up Catan and then Ticket to Ride and Pandemic. And as things progressed, the collection of board games you can see behind me on in this pile is, um, you know, it, that happened. And, and I never stopped tweaking until the point where I had a family, really. And um, and my kids were like, we started them off on like the, the orchard like the kids games and they were like three and four past the pigs and uh you know like matching pairs and basic stuff but by the time they were like i don't know like six seven we would sit at the table and they'd be like right we'll play Catan. you're on my team and you're on mom's team and nice. by the time they were like eight they would just get up and play pandemic on their own on a saturday morning you know like you you you, you not give kids enough credit but at that point i'm like okay these are like play testers in my house right so i started child I started, labor yeah, that's exactly just be careful how we phrase it but um i um i started pulling you know games designs that i just had floating around ideas yeah. for things for ages and i'd be like guys do you want to play a new game and they would be like yeah because we want to play games every day and I'm like, brilliant, you've not seen this one before. And I know it looks crap because it's just drawn on a piece of paper with a pencil, but it's a game, let's play it. And, and I started doing stuff and they'd be like, you know, if they were bored in 20 minutes, I'd be like, that can go back on the shelf. Yeah. But then if they played it through to completion for an hour, you can capture an eight-year-old's attention for an hour 
without them bouncing around the room or drawing on the wall, then you're like, okay, this like this is cool. And then yeah, I, I kept doing that, and until eventually, my wife was like, look, Shep, the Kickstarter exists. Just do it, right? And um, um, and she was right. I did. I did it. You know, yeah. wow. I, I put a little game out, and that was really the start of me being like, okay, I need to get back into working in a games company again. And then it spiraled from there. Um, and I, and I, despite doing many jobs in the industry over the last few years, particularly that are not creative roles within the games industry they're more business orientated roles i still think of myself as a games designer designer mm-hmm. and a writer first i am still a creator and if i was given the time i like i, I would just create non-stop yeah yeah so interesting um if we go back if you think back to to your little um incubator that you had with you and the kids where you started slapping down uh, rough designs. Hey, what kids you want to play a new game and you got feedback from them. You learned some things in that process. And it sounds like it may have been really kind of the, the, the genesis of all of this. Is there anything that you learned in that time when it was just you, your wife and your kids, and you were putting your creations in front of them? Is there anything you learned that you still leverage today? One thing I think I've touched on this very briefly and it's a conversation I have a lot. I see it happen on social network groups, like on Facebook, on discussion groups is, uh, and I'm, this is more learning about people and it is learning about games design, but it's that people don't give kids enough credit. Yeah. Um, I see a lot of people saying, Oh, I've got a, you know, nine or 10 year old kid and what games are good for 10 year olds. I'm like, the answer is all games are good for 10 year olds. <laughs> like, my kids can like by 10 they were like playing star wars rebellion on their own you yeah. know like and and I know, that's not me like boasting about my kids being smart or anything it's just they got gaming early they get it they're inspired by it they're excited by it they're competitive and they can play any game that you show them any game that you show them how to play and i believe any child can if they start playing games and they like it, if you, you introduce a kid to games and they're like, yeah, whatever, they're, they're never, they're not going to get to that right. point. But if it excites them, like the sky is the limit. And sure, okay, it's a little different if your kid's 10 and they've never really played anything beyond Monopoly before and you, you've got to start over. And there are obviously good gateway game suggestions you can throw in there. But the, the onus there is not what's a good game for somebody that's new to gaming. It's like, my kid's only nine. What are they capable of? And that, like, I learned so much, not just playing games with my kids, but using them as play testers. Yeah. I'm like, man, I don't, give these guys enough credit like they are little people and they are very capable um so that's that was a really huge lesson for me and it changed the way i i looked at my children as a parent and how i look at other you know other kids who are doing great things and you know don't always get enough credit for it i think that's a really important thing to touch on so shep i i've interviewed not now hundreds of of creators and um, your one thing that's very unique about your origin story is at no point did I hear the Dungeon and Dragons mentioned. Um, your your first initial exposure were to some really, um, at the you know, 
not uncommon games, but smaller games right now. Obviously, Vampire was huge, but, yeah. you know, thinking about like slaying industries and things like that. Um, as you create now and you, again, look back at those formative exposure to some of those non-Dragon um, uh, role-playing games, are there any games or systems that you feel really had a huge impact in how you think about role-playing games? Yeah, Dungeons and Dragons is an interesting one because I quite I, I've I've never been a fan of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, Why I is that? I don't know. I think I, I mean, at that point, I can't even think what edition it would have been at that point. But um, I I didn't like the system. Okay, I've always been somebody like I'm a rules guy. You know, I've I've worked as a developer on a lot of rule systems. Like good rule systems make me tick like it's a good thing and i always disliked dungeons and dragons and today fifth ed is everywhere fifth ed is really an important part of our um gaming community it's a lot of people's introduction um i i, I can't stand it like it's not i'm not a fan <laughs> like it has its place and i also wouldn't say that i would personally never make a fifth ed based supplement because from a commercial standpoint like running a business sometimes that is the right decision about certain game supplements right but as a creator and as a lover of of, of games and of rules like i i think dungeons and dragons has always had too much to remember and mm. it's always had too many moving parts. And it also tried to introduce too many rules for too many things. Right. Um, and I still feel that way about that, about fifth ed. And, and I, I do like very, very streamlined narrative focused rule systems, but I do also like older school crunchy stuff, you know, like I, 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 I grew up on first edition slay industries and that was very crunchy and yeah. um there's just something about it worked and something about dungeons and dragons didn't also as a flip to that i've never been a huge fantasy fan like oh, okay I'm that's very, interesting why is that very, i don't know i mean like i'm a huge lord of the rings fan okay right. and i uh, and i'm a big fan of the one ring the first edition one ring when Johnny Hodgson was the man behind the art and like that, I really loved those books. They felt very Tolkien and I, mm -hmm. I you know, I love the Tolkien novels but outside of Lord of the Rings. Not a lot of fantasy has ever really made me like excited until recent years, like things like the Witcher. And I have to admit, like I've discovered the Witcher through Netflix, not through the novels. Okay. Right. Like I've, I've gone backwards and I've read, the fiction and stuff and it's great but i i started you know like henry cavill is the reason i like is i like the witcher not because i discovered it through being a fantasy lover and if i look like now at my rpg collection um which is sizable uh there are really only two notable fantasy lines in there one is the one ring and the other is Modiphius's Conan 2D20. Mm. And the reason that I have so much of that, if I'm honest, is because I was or used to be the line manager for it. And right. so I love the world because I was utterly engrossed in it for a few years. Like it was my life. Yeah. Um, and so it holds a very special place for me. But I could probably be honest and say if I hadn't worked with Conan as the line manager, 
would I have ever got into it the way I did? Maybe not. Like, there's some great writing in there. There's some, we worked with some fantastic writers and that made it very special. But, um, yeah, I don't know what it is. Like, I've always been a sci-fi fan and it's the same deal with movies. You know, I think back, I grew up, I think about the first more mature movies I saw when I, you know, the first 18 rated films that I saw before I was 18 and where Robocop terminator predator like these things excited me they were new worlds they were that escape from reality there was just something about it like and i remember watching fantasy of the time you know uh, like willow and uh man i can't even think but those and I, you know i enjoyed those movies but i was never a fan like i have been of science fiction so a lot of the things that you just listed as reasons you love sci-fi, I could hear a fantasy person, a fantasy fan say, that's why I love fantasy, right? So in your mind, what is the differentiator? So what does sci-fi bring that excites you that fantasy doesn't bring as a genre? I honestly don't know if I can yeah. answer that question. Something that's inside fair. me, I feel this magnetic pull to things with exploration and cybernetics and just the i don't know you know the use of artificial intelligence and like i there's something about that side of creative media that makes my ears prick up yeah. and then there's something about you know adventurers walking off into the wilderness with a bow and a sword that makes me feel like yeah, but it's not Lord of the Rings, is it? Like, I, I, <laughs> sure. and I, I, you know, like that might seem really harsh, and no. it might even be quite naive because there's obviously loads of great fantasy out there. Like, I watch sci-fi, and I don't immediately say, mm, "How does this stand up to RoboCop?" You know, like, but I do watch fantasy, and I think, "How does this stack up to Lord of the Rings?" And the answer That's is really almost always nothing. Yeah. Nothing is as good as those movies or those books like i can't i just can't get past that and you know I, i'm happy to admit that yeah. it just doesn't work for me um and so it yeah. sounds like that there was there was there is a touchstone that scratches that itch for you right and you just don't have a desire to to explore beyond that Whereas with sci-fi, it sounds like your appetite is a little bit wider um, and that there's, there's just something that's a little bit different about it. Mm -hmm. So, guys, the Insider Insight series allows me to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers and creators to learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, inspiration and the methods for crafting their creations. We've got a lot to talk about in that way with Shep. So we'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you enjoying our long form interviews with creatives on this podcast? Maybe you're craving deeper discussions about our guests or some of the RPG plays on our Twitch and YouTube channel. Well, I've got an opportunity for you. 
You see, Third Floor Wars now has a Patreon-only Discord server. You can join a vibrant community of like-minded enthusiasts diving deep into every episode of our RPG plays and podcast. Connect with fans, engage in spirited discussions, and unlock the behind-the-scenes insights. For just a dollar a month, access a world of tabletop gaming goodness. Connect with passionate gamers who share your love for the tabletop podcast and everything produced on the third floor. As a Patreon supporter, you also enjoy ad-free episodes of this podcast. You can immerse yourselves in captivating stories and fascinating interviews without interruptions, taking your listening experience to a whole new level. By joining the Third Floor Wars Patreon community, you not only gain exclusive access to the Patreon-only Discord server, but you also support the growth of my podcast and channels. Your contributions enable me to continue creating high-quality content that entertains, educates, and upskills tabletop enthusiasts like yourself. Maybe don't wait. Join the Third Floor Wars Patreon today and unlock a world of camaraderie, discussions, and knowledge. Visit patreon.com forward slash third floor wars or check the link in the show notes and come join our community. The Third Floor Wars Patreon-only Discord server awaits you. I and the other patrons can't wait to welcome you with open arms and a fistful of dice. So, Shep, what's interesting for me is there, you know, if I were to ask you this question, which is, you know, what's the first time you were a professional in this industry? That'd be easy, right? You said, what's the, how do we define professional? This was the first time it happened, Craig. What I'd like to do before we jump into talking about things that you've created for so many other different companies, when is the first time you felt like a professional? Yeah, sure. Okay. That's actually quite easy for me to answer. Um, the first time I felt like a professional in the games industry was when I came on board to complete the writing of Slay Industries Cannibal Sector 1, which was the final the final book for the first edition of Slay Industries, and then move into being the rules developer for Slay Industries 2nd edition. So as a game, that was a benchmark of my teenage years. Right. To be asked to be... Like literally, I, at that point in time, I was a director of Nightfall Games. So, and I was on the, the, I was there as a director purely to help direct that creative process of that, of, yeah. of that. And I'm like, I still, um, and I, and I largely owe most of this to a guy uh, who, like, um, you should also speak to at some point, a really fantastic guy to speak, Mark Rapson who owns Wordforge games and is a director of Nightfall games as well. I, I owe everything for, to a chance meeting with Mark at Essen some years mm. ago now. And, um, that's a whole story in itself, but basically I, um, as a result of that, I, I ended up coming in to Nightfall games with him as part of, helping them overcome a, a significant hurdle, which could have been the end of Slay Industries forever. Wow. Um, 
and um uh, you know and at that time i'd i'd done little bits of rules development and i'd actually done some freelance work for mark shortly after meeting at essen on, on board games rule book development um but then he kind of clicked onto my writing style and my um like my kind of need for accuracy and rules writing and also the fact that I was a huge Slay Industries fan for my teenage years and that he had this opportunity and before you know it I you know I wrote I think 75,000 words for Cannibal Sector wow. it's, a, it's a ridiculously big book like it's bigger than yeah. the core rule book it's massive um, and um, you know and then people like Slay Industries has a very passionate be it kind of niche audience like a very passionate player base and to have those people being like this content this is cool this is great oh i really love your writing like you know being recognized as one of the people behind what i always considered to be you know one of the greatest role play games of all time like i remember sitting back and almost having tears in my eyes being like this book when that came in print and my copy arrived in the post i was like if i never do anything else in gaming again now having my name having been able to open that page and go i wrote that for slaying the spirit like that was everything to me you know and even now i look back you know at, at that period in time like i'm super super proud of doing that and um and i'm really proud of of you know dave and jared and mark for like really hammering slay industries forward into the new era like they've done a phenomenal job and uh yeah like, but that was the point where i was like okay slay industries on my cv now what else is out there like this is right. where it can start now and honestly it was that opened the door to me to work on other things people were like what have you worked on um i worked on slay industries okay here's some writing and that <laughs> that happened quite a bit in the, in the years that followed, you know, um, the way I, uh, we mentioned at the start that my, I have a day job with Modifius and um, Modifius are a, a super cool employer in that they really encourage their employees to go out and create their own stuff. You know, that's why I have a publishing company and I'm able to freelance for the people. They're not right. like a company who are like, you work for us, so you work for us. And, um, you know, I, the reason I actually first touched base with Modifius was because um through chance meetings at conventions i the then line manager was like you've written on slay industries you need to come and write for infinity okay and so that was how i first um met modifius was by um by working on infinity ironically the line manager at the time um for infinity with modifius ben graybeaton is now the rules shepherd for nightfall games and looks after isn't that funny rule set. we've just yeah. all swapped everybody swapped around it's very incestuous so um but yeah that like you know that opened a lot of doors for me and was the point where i said okay that that is a professional writing credit this is not just a guy dabbling with a bit of writing in the back like he's worked right. on a big brand and his stuff is really good and i was very proud of what i i did there and um so yeah that that was definitely the first time I felt that. So a couple questions. One, what you said about Slay Industries is has proven uh, in my experience as well, which is this is a phrase I've never heard somebody say, which is, yeah, Slay, Slay Industries is fine. 
let's never, those words have never been spoken. It's either, oh my God, you have not played this game before where we're going to stop everything right now. We're going to sit down. I'm going to show this like, and just, you know, evangelical just loves the, or no, that's, that's, that's garbage. I never want to play it. Right. There's nobody in between. For those listening that may not be familiar with Slay Industries, and I would imagine a good number of my listeners aren't, what the hell's going on there? Why is it that there's nobody lukewarm about Slay Industries? Why does it have such a passionate core uh, fan fan base, do you think? Man, it's hard to put a single thing down on it. Like, I mean, it's most of its fan base, obviously, has been with it since the start, since the early 90s, uh, since first edition Slay. And at the time... I think there wasn't a huge amount of role-playing coming out of, of the UK. You know, mm. it is at its core very British. It is, um, yeah. Um, it's dark, it's dank, it's raining. It is basically the sci-fi of equivalent of Glasgow in mm. the 80s and <laughs> 90s. And, um, and, like, it had so much going for it at the time, you know? Like, it had lots and lots of fiction in that core book and those first few books that weren't just like the same old fiction that you got in other sci-fi games at the time it wasn't just like two guys walking down the street getting in a fight like it was fiction that left you like what the fuck is going on like real mind-bending weirdness with like aliens and like supernatural and so much going off and there's cannibals and serial killers on the television like what is going off and the artwork was next level for games at that time you know having you know one of the 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 driving force behind slay industries being dave walsop who you know was also worked on Magic the Gathering and, mm-hmm. you know, like so many other IP. Like, there aren't many artists out there that produce the quality that Dave Allsop produces. And there is nobody else's mind in the world that could have dreamt up the world of, say, industries. <laughs> and, you know, um, what Dave and Jared and the other contributors did at the time with that. Um, pulling artists in and there's so you look at the art credits for that original book and you've got uh johnny hodgson who went on to do all the lord of the rings art for cubicle seven you've got clint langley who went on to do uh judge dread and the abc warriors like sure it was black and white art it was art at the time but there was just nothing like yeah save some of the high budget artwork that was in vampire the masquerade like nothing stood up aesthetically to slay industries and they did such an amazing job of building a immersive violent and frankly bizarre world there was Mm -hmm. just nothing else like it but being a british role-playing game even during the limited time that wizards of the coast uh picked it up and i and as i understand it the main reason they picked it up is because they wanted dave and jared to work for them on other things as opposed to like it was like we'll come to you but slay comes part of the deal um even during that time you know getting hold of it the exposure to uh, the marketplace was uh it was tough it's uh, like you said lots of people don't know what it is um yeah I know I'm sure some of your listeners now are frantically Googling it and spelling it wrong. It's S L A Industries. Um and um 
yeah, it's it it was just very special. And then that the Karma source book came out, and it blew people's minds because, like, you open the Karma source book and you expect it to be like every other role play game source book. Here's more weapons. Here's more world. And it was like a magazine. Like every page had a completely different layout design. Some of it looked like things stuck on notice boards, and some of it was like some of it was just pure fiction like this is a magazine article about some guy that like he's run out of food and this is where he's gonna go find like it's just so random and like like it was just amazing people were like and and, i mean you only have to look on ebay to see what a copy of the karma source book goes for now and you're like okay this is like obviously something quite special um um so yeah like this it's hard to pinpoint there's so many reasons why Slay sure. was exciting and uh and, and in my opinion still is today, you know, like it, it was a benchmark of role playing. It's still probably the biggest British uh role play that ever existed. And uh, if you were a role player in the nineties in the UK, going right. to role play clubs, going to a, your local game store where there were role play games, like you would have seen a copy of the first edition book on the shelf and you'd have flicked through it and you'd have probably wet your pants at the artwork. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I can understand a lot of the U S and, uh, Canada and Australia and other markets probably never really saw a lot of it, but damn, that they, they were special books. No, and I'd I'd heard, and 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 again, everybody knows they can scroll down. We'll have links to to Slay Industry so you can explore. But it, it is S L A, um, and um, you know, it, it it had always been kind of in the zeitgeist for me. Like I would hear about it, I would see it, I would, I for the long time called it S L A, and then finally met somebody who knew the game. They're like, no, it's Slay, and I'm like, okay. And then, and you talk about the artwork, man. The most recent Kickstarter. Flipping through Kickstarter and I'm like, what the F is this? And then I'm like, oh, and I made the connection, right? Like, this is not a new game. This is a very old game. And I just went all in. It hasn't been fulfilled yet, but I'm really excited to finally like dive into this world because even if I bounce off of it, I'm excited to see exactly what you're talking about, which is this incredibly passionate following has to come from something. And I've also heard that the community as a community is amazing as well Um, that, you know, you might look at it as kind of like this dark dystopian edge world type of, of setting, but the community is just full of great people is all I keep hearing. So I'm excited to kind of go into it. Yeah, it's fantastic. And the, the new books, they look stunning, you know, like, I mean, Dave, Dave and, and, you know, and his chosen art crew are still producing next level artwork. Yeah. Um, And the content is still, as mind bending as ever. And, oh, um, yeah, you're, I mean, you're, you're going to absolutely love it. When you flip over, open the second edition core book and you read the piece of fiction, the, the one page piece of fiction on the inside cover of that book, mm-hmm. you're just going to be like, huh? Like <laughs> <laughs> what? And then you'll read the next piece of fiction. You'll be like, okay, what's going off? Like, and oh, you, that's you cool. won't be able to put the book down. Like, it, it's fantastic. They've oh just, just God, done such an excited. amazing job with it. Yeah, that's no, brilliant. So you finish that. You've now got some cred, right? And, and, and your work on Slay has g- given you that cred. When you now look at um, your path, what is the next big landmark for you? What is the What was the kind of the next big moment for you professionally? 
I think the next big thing was getting a full-time job for a games company. So when we were doing the Slay stuff originally, um, you know, we all had jobs uh, for other things, Mark owned WordForge games. Um, I I was freelancing in, uh, as a, a business development manager in a, with, for a finance company, and um, and Dave was doing artwork for uh, you know various publishers and various games as he does, and, and Jared that runs his um, his IT infrastructure uh, business, and um, uh, and things were going really well for WordForge, and Mark Rapson sort of employed me. I was still doing the Slay stuff on the side, but he employed me to do project management work for WordForge Games because they were growing their their games portfolio. They were they'd seen some great success with uh, D Day Dice on Kickstarter, and um, so I think for maybe for about six months or so, I had my first full time job in the games industry. Rather than and I'd earned good money off freelance writing and stuff before then, um, but to work full time in games is very different. And that was, um, that was really great. Be it relatively short lived, you know, WordForge um, couldn't sustain m- multiple employees and uh, yeah. it was a short term uh, thing, but it was great. Mm-hmm. Um, and shortly after that, I had the opportunity to, to move to Modiphius. So that came through, um, uh, again, a who you know situation. A guy who, uh, and actually, that only came about because I'd worked on Slay Industries. So this is an interesting little story. Um, a member of the big, passionate member of the Slay Industries community, who's also an RPG creator himself, a guy called Mark Whittington. He makes a small cyberpunk RPG called Black Code, uh, which is a cool little indie game. Um, he works for Modiphius as a graphic designer, <laughs> and. Um, he uh, basically Modiphius were looking for a new project manager and he knew of me through Slay Industries because he now owned the books that I had worked on. And I, <laughs> I was quite vocal in the, in the community fan groups and stuff, you know, we all talked there as ourselves and um, we'd spoken, you know, just as a, you know, creator to, to player of a game. And he knew we, we kind of linked up on LinkedIn and websites like that. And he could, he'd seen my previous experience and knew that I did yeah. project management, business development. And he just got in touch with me on LinkedIn and was like, Hey, Shep, it's Mark from, you know, the Slay fan group. We're looking for a project manager. Are, are you interested? And I'm like, hell yes, there's a CV. And, um, and then I, yeah, short time later, I ended up in the employment of Modiphius. And that was, that was like, okay, I've gone from freelancing, be it on phenomenal IPs to working for a, you know, small to medium publisher for a short period of time to, to a company that I guess are considered to be one of the biggest RPG publishers in the marketplace. And that's amazing. The path that Chris has taken with that company and, and, yeah. and where, where, where that company, and, and for some people, especially those of us on this side of the pond, it seemed to come out of nowhere. And it was just like, all of a sudden, Modifius was everywhere and the quality of shit that was coming out of those doors 
you just couldn't ignore it. Um, the closest thing I've seen to it, and they're tied a little bit to each other's free league did the same thing for us here in the States. Just like, what the hell? Like all of a sudden, like add water and you've got not on, obviously we've had Chris on the show, not realizing there's a lot of history that went into that, but yeah, I consider yeah. Modifius definitely one of the bigger non Watsi uh, companies out there and, and, and both in quantity as quality as well. Yeah. Well, they, you know, as a company, we do some great stuff. Um, you know, there was those early days of the um, uh, of the Kickstarters that really like made that company explode. Um, yep. You know, and, and the and the, um, the creation of Act on Cthulhu, which you know is Chris's Chris's original baby, if you like. And um, you know, yeah, it makes some great stuff. And I, when I first went to Modifius as a project manager, I um, effectively was the, the the project manager behind uh, Conan. Although Beautiful. we were aware that. Conan's license was kind of uh, on the horizon. So I kind of looked after most of the last chapter, or at least laid the groundwork for the last sort of few chapters of, of, of that line and act on Cthulhu. And I also joined the company and I, I started taking over Dune as a, um, as a line. So the core book had just come out and we yeah. were gearing up for the first source book. And then that's when I got involved in, in driving the next few releases of, of, of Dune out. So, yeah. So as, as, as a guy who loves rules, as a guy who loves mechanics, um, talk to me about your original, and obviously I'm sure it's adapted since that, but what was your original, um, reaction to Jay Little's 2d20, you know, concept when you first saw the 2d20 thing, like, well, what was your first reaction to it? My first reaction, like I wasn't sold, like, yeah. and, I, and I'm saying like, you know, like all my friends are Modifius, like they might listen to this and be like, Shep, like that's blasphemy. Like so I, I wasn't sold first off, right? But I, I think anybody now can look back at particularly things like Infinity and Conan and realize that at that point, 2D20 was quite a crunchy system. Yeah. And, I, I, and I would say that my hesitation with the system was very much the same issue I had with Dungeons and Dragons back in the day. Mm -hmm. so the system was um, very good and it covered everything, but it was maybe just a bit too much for my normal liking of systems. Um, but when I started working with the system, like, and I wasn't working in a rules development sense with it, but I had hands on it and I was talking with creators and writers and people that are creating content for, uh, for the 2D20 system, I started to really understand its merits and mm -hmm. the fact it is also at its core, the core mechanic of that game is so beautifully simple to explain to people yeah. and learn. And that what, what makes it seem complicated to some players is the amount of extras that can be added, like which and a lot of the time can be viewed as optional. But the core mechanic is very simple yep. and it works really well. Um, and over the lines that followed, so as we moved away from Conan and Infinity and we, we gave birth to systems like Dune, Mm -hmm. And the revisions and development that uh, Nathan Dowdle did to 2D20 to bring it into like the modern age are yeah. just fantastic. Yeah. And the beauty that we can now mold 2D20 and give it some thematic flavoring for the relevant world and system and do with it some 
really interesting. I mean, Dune in particular with the way it deals with the asset cards and like it's a really clever way to use that system. Uh, and, and you know, Dune even does away with the D6 damage system it's purely d20s mm-hmm. um but then you know we ha- we we have acton cthulhu that is like if you like the evolution of the system that people knew from conan and infinity and john carter of mars and um you know has been streamlined in such a massive way from its original inception that um you know now it's a hugely popular system that we get masses of love for yeah. and and is now to a point where you know nathan is able to mold and adapt that to new systems as it comes out in like really in a really great way um so yeah it's a really nice system but yeah i, I absolutely have put my hand up and say when i first had hands on it in the early days it fell into that bit too crunchy for me category but what it is now like i, I think it's a great system i think it's an industry benchmark I could not agree more. And I had a similar journey as you did. And I think um, we'll move on to other things, obviously, here in a second. But I think one of the biggest testaments to where it is now is that uh, I'm a huge system matters person. Right. Um, I'm a firm believer that you need to create a game mechanically that supports the type of game that's going to get played. And there are, you know, there's generic systems or generic engines, whatever the hell you want to call them out there that um, I don't think support play. Um, 2D20 does. 2D20 supports Octon Cthulhu. It supports Star Trek Adventures, and then it supports Dune. And yes, there are tweaks between the the core system in all three of them, but the core is still there, and its ability to support very different types of play, um, I think is it's a testament. Um, so I, I am completely aligned and agree with you on that. With um, I'm going to give you a scenario, Shep. Um, I say, Hey, you know, Shep, uh, I'm, I'm going to come over to the house. Um, can you put together just a pile of the stuff that you've made for others that you're the most proud of? Um, that, that just, you know, we, we, t- I, I know one book, we talked about it for Slay Industries that would obviously be in that pile, but, and this doesn't necessarily mean these were the biggest things you worked on. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that they had the most widespread visibility, but you as a creator, as a creative, what, what would I find in that pile for you? Not made for other people. Okay. So, um, so as a, as a creative, as a writer, obviously Slay Industries, the, the Cannibal Sector one, but also the, the core book for second yeah. edition, um, you know, the, the rule system that's contained for Slay, uh, the S5S system, uh, which is now also to be found in the Terminator RPG and the Stokerverse RPG and pretty much anything else that Nightfall games work on. That that was all my work at that point in time. And, and Ben Graybeaton now develops that and twists it and adjusts it. He does what Nathan Dowdle does for, for Modiphius. He adjusts right. the core system and make it work for the new game, and he's doing great work with that. Uh, but that, that core book for Slay Industry 2nd Edition, um, I'm really, really proud of that, and that would definitely be high on my list. Um, it was a hard book to sell with the very mm. passionate fan base, you know, who don't, they want Slay to evolve and they want Slay to change, but they also don't want anything to change. Yes. So coming yeah. out with a new rule system that was kind of a bit more streamlined and a bit more modern, but also wouldn't alienate people that liked a bit of depth. Like that was a hard challenge. 
And yeah, that's, um, a, that's a tough needle to thread. Yeah, it was a really tough needle to thread. And you know, like I'm, I'm even at the UK Games Expo only a few weeks ago. I, I was actually there with my own product with Hansa Publishing, but I, I, I was shared a stand with the Nightfall guys, and um, I had so many people ask me to sign their sleigh books, which was hugely humbling. And oh, you know, I had cool. a few people be like, well, "I really wish you hadn't done that with the Raw yeah. show." <laughs> and you're like, "Yeah, but if we hadn't, we would still have." The first edition, right? Anyway, it's all, it's all, it's all good. <laughs> but I'm hugely proud of um, of that. Um, also, I guess is another game that a lot of people probably don't know is the Devil's Run RPG. Um, Devil's Run was a very successful board game for yep. um, for Wordforge Games, one of the games that launched Wordforge Games, um, which was your kind of Mad Max style, great board game with a rolling road. When you got to the end of the board, you took the other end of the board and moved it over. And even the box itself was part of the board. It was the tunnel, and there was yep. a tunnel printing. Oh, it was brilliant. Great, great game. So um, Mark at Wordforge licensed out um, the IP to Red Scar, who, who unfortunately are, are no longer uh, our publisher. They, they exited the industry now, as, as many people have since COVID. Um, yeah. But they created the RPG in uh, set in the world. You know, if you want, ever wanted to play Mad Max, the RPG, this is as close as you're going to close as you're going to get and um I, I wrote a significant chunk of the core book all of the faction like i i was this was an interesting one for me because i didn't work on the rules development i worked on the setting and the law and the fa- evolving the the information about the factions and the people and um like i really I I loved the I do love the world. I still play Devil's Run on Games Night quite regularly, and uh, yeah, making that book was a real joy. In fact, I'm very sad that um, it, the line didn't continue. That haven't been yeah. source books and content. Um, so yeah, that's a great. Um, that's definitely a great one. Um, and I'm and I'm definitely proud of um, those last few Infinity source books when I got on board to work for. Modifius, um, I would say probably a copy of Hypercorps. Um, there's some, like when I got involved in Infinity, I was told like you know everything has to go through the licensor. Obviously, Corvus Belly, they're very protective of their IP and they know their world very well. So whilst we can suggest new things, like we have to try and play within the ballpark. Right? Mm-hmm. It was my that was my first time working on an IP where you had to go through approvals. And um, Hypercorps is the one book where I actually made up loads of new stuff, and Corvus Belly said yes to it all. Oh, so that was huge. like, I was like, oh man, I made this mech, and they said yes, and then I made this like medicine, and they said yes, and then I made this like crazy technology that like, and they said yes, and I'm like, awesome, you know, like having your stuff injected as cannon into somebody else's world yeah. is like really exciting. So yeah, Hypercorps. Um, would be there definitely um as a non-creative there's probably so as a project manager working on other things um right at the end of the conan lifestyle cycle uh, we released um shadows of the sorcerer which was mm-hmm. a source book a campaign book now that book has a really long history um it was written in its entirety by jason Durrell 
who is a, an industry heavyweight and was the original line manager for Conan at Modifius back in the day. And uh, as I understand it, and uh, you'd have to get Jason on the show to answer the questions exactly. Uh, he's bad, but keep, keep going. He, Jason had um, basically written this campaign for Mongoose however many years ago they had the license, like what, 15, mm-hmm. however long ago it was. And they lost that license before they published it and it just sat on the shelf and we were like, we need to end this line on a real high point. What can we do? And Jason was like, I mean, Shadow of the Sorcerer still exists. And we're like, can you finish it? Can you revisit it? Can you do 2D20 it? And can you finish it? And, um, you know, we worked with Jason on doing that, um, really closely. And, um, uh, and we also had uh, a new art director come in, um, uh, Rothio Martin. She came in to work on the artwork and like some of the artwork in that book is just like, it's the best art that we did for Conan with the best campaign we did for Conan, with some of the best writing we did for Conan. And I got to manage that from like idea to getting it out and i'm really proud of that piece of work because the book is done there's one piece of art in that book that's i can't i still everybody says what's the best piece of art that you can think of from modifius and there's a this like in an underground river and there's this like 20 foot alligator capsizing a boat and the, it's just so brilliantly done like the art yeah. direction and the artist's work was just incredible and it's so moody you know every piece of art in that book is strongly connected to the text there's no generic art which is a very rare thing for role play games it's yeah. actually something i'm very pa- passionate about uh, if we touch on hands of stuff like i'm really into that whole every piece of art tells the story um you don't have anything that's just it's conan you know like right. it has to be like what's happening on that page and so um and we did that with Shadow of the Sorcerer, and that book is incredible. Like, Jason Durrell knocked it out of the park uh, yeah. with that campaign. And so, yeah, I'm really proud of that, and I would definitely put that in my pile. Uh, so I've got that book, and um, um, I, if, what Lord of the Rings is for you, Robert E. Howard was for me, right? And um, not because Robert E. Howard is better or worse than anybody else, it's just when I was a kid, my introduction to fantasy was coming sure. right? yeah. and I just consumed it. Um, and I can say this with, with, with enough. I think if anybody argued with me, I could back it up. I think that that book is the most Conan book, not only in the Modifius line, but might be the most Conan book that I've read for any RPG. Uh, set in that setting. And for all the reasons you listed the writing, the, like, Everybody involved from the art to the writing to the mechanic, the mechanic of the campaign itself. It's just it is so Conan. And yeah. it's it's the only thing I would ever. I, I mean, I own Con, the 2D20 Conan. I've never run it, but that's all I'm going to do is pull that book out. And this is how I'm going to play it for that exact reason. So that's cool. I, I, I absolutely agree. You know, and as a company and as an individual, like it's a book that. I think I can say we're all very proud of. And, you know, and I've already said on this call, I'm not a guy that does campaigns, pre-written campaigns, right? right? Like that's not my thing. And I would still pull Shadow of the Sorcerer off the shelf to run because it is very special. 
It is. No, I completely agree. So, guys, we're going to take another break. When we get back from this break, we're going to stop talking about making stuff for other people. We're going to start talking about making stuff for ourselves. We're going to get into the guy complex. We'll be right back. You like science fiction, right? You love playing games, maybe even role-playing games. But what if you can't get your friends together for a game night? If you love games like Mothership or Orbital Blues, check out Dead Belt, a card-based space western solo strategy RPG about skillful and desperate scavengers picking over the remains of junked starships in hopes of a juicy payday. In it, you deal with lurking dangers, push your luck, and walk away with enough cred to keep on flying. Of course, you might get eaten by lurking aliens, or run afoul of rival scavengers, or face the murderous ghosts of long-dead spacers. No one said life in the dead belt was going to be easy. For more information on this and all of Sean and Abby Drake's games, swing over to a coupleofdrakes.com. The link's in the show notes. I feel like here in this first hour, we've done a really good job, I think, understanding, Shep, you know, your origins, where you've come from, um, the things that you've created for others, the things that you have excited you as a gamer and as a creator. But at some point, this little thing called Gaia Complex starts to talk in the back of your head. And just so for those of you not familiar with it, I'm going to read a little bit of the blurb off the website so everybody can get a context, but we're going to go back in time. So the Guy Complex is a cyberpunk RPG set on Earth in 2119. Small pockets of humanity survived the horrific resource war, eventually forming the 11 metropolises, which have managed to grow and prosper due to the development of atmospheric processing and significant technological advancements. The Guy Complex focuses on the largest of these metropolises, New Europe, a single sprawling city that covers much of mainland Europe. New Europe is a world of street violence, corporate espionage, vampiric uprisings, and an overzealous AI known as Gaia, which functions as the city's governor and protector of its citizens. Holy shit, dude. (laughs) And what's cool about reading that, Shep, is that I can hear so much of what we talked about in the first hour, right? So, but this thing does not exist, right? So I go to the Shep Museum. And I take my take my daughter and I say, honey, we got to go to the Gaia Complex uh, section of the museum and we go there. What's the first acorn? So where does that story start? Well, firstly, I'm really sorry for your daughter that you're going to drag her around the Shep Museum. <laughs> <laughs> uh, OK, so that comes. That so back when I was working on um, Slay Industries, I was very much in writer mode. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's the first time where I had had a a job or a messing with games where i was basically writing you know right. some days for an hour some days for eight hours i was in writer mode and um your mind wanders 
okay? And I <laughs> had an idea for a novel that I really wanted to write. Like, I was like, I have a story that I want to tell, okay? Um, inspired by, you know, everything from the role-play games I was involved in and, the, you know, slay industries and movies that I love. And I just had a story. I had a start. I had a middle. I had some characters in my mind. I probably had an end, although that's definitely gone out the window now. Um, <laughs> so I, ha- I had, I had a, a story that I wanted to tell. And I started writing it when I found the headspace to be able to do that. I started, started writing bits, you know, bullet pointing scenes. What's the middle look like? So I, I worked on that a little bit. Um, and then I realized I'm never going to write a novel. This is ridiculous. Like that is a lot of words. You know, I wrote 75,000 words for Cannibal Sector One. And that was a huge amount of words. Like I'm, I'm never going to write a novel. Like you can't break it up with rules. Like that's going to kill me. So, (laughs) um, I, you know, I kind of put it on the shelf, but not too long afterwards. Um, I kind of was like, yeah, but you do make games. You do write games. And maybe this story can be told through a game. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm like, okay, uh, let me see how this will work. And the first thing I did is I took the, I guess what you would call like the, from the start to the reveal in the middle of the story. And I broke it into episodic short fiction, mm. you know, like a couple of thousand words a piece over about 12 bits. And it was, it read a bit like you would expect the overview of a Netflix series to run. Here's 12 episodes introducing each diff- first few introduce different characters, and then you learn how they connect. And then you kind of find out what the big conspiracy is and why they're important. And I was like, okay, I've just written 12 chapter intros. I'm going to make a game that has a, real meta plot and that's clearly inspired by slay industries right that like has a meta plot but unlike slay industries i'm going to tell you what that meta plot is at the end of the book like everything i'm going to reveal i'm going to spill my secrets by mm-hmm. having the plot twist in the book okay um and i so i've written this thing and it was a character driven fiction okay so then i started fleshing out the world that these characters exist in and yeah, before too long, it just spiraled. And then I hit the bit where I'm like, okay, rules. Okay, this is this really is my thing now. Right. I, like, let me make a system completely bespoke to this setting that just feels like this setting. It's and and you know what? I'm doing this on my own. Like nobody else has to like it. Like absolutely and utterly my rules. If I don't want it in the game, it doesn't go in there. No matter how many people ask for it. If I do, it's going in. And um, so pause for just a second, if we could here, because this, I think is a big deal in my mind is you have, it's very clear that you're a rules guy. It's very clear that um, you're, you just don't accept rules, right? You're saying like, this is important system matters. You know, I I'm drawn to some games because of the rules. There's other games that I've bounced off of because so rules mechanics and all of that's a big deal to you. You now are in an opportunity Shep where no one's telling you anything, right? This thing could be 
literally anything mechanically. And I want to get a sense when you like now have this empty sandbox with everything you've learned. What was the initial North Star? Because you have to start somewhere, right, to build these mechanics and to start fresh. What was that initial North Star for you? Well, <laughs> you're going to find it probably quite silly. But the, <laughs> uh, the, the initial North Star for the Rules of the Guy Complex were, um, so I had played, uh, we talked earlier on about um, Devil's Run. Yes. Okay. Devil's Run was the first time. I'm going to show you something on video now, but I'll explain it so people know what that is. So yeah. Devil's Run, as part of its dice pool, uses these. Okay, These are D3s. Mm-hmm. They're kind of like little kidney bean shaped things. They're really weird. Okay. These are the best dice I have ever rolled. Like these die are just because... amazing. They just feel right when you roll them. Like you really, they're like rolled around in your hand and they're waiting. Like they're beautiful die. And they're yeah. bizarre. And anyway, I love the dice. And so I was like, right, that's my North Star. I want Isn't to use those dice in a game. And that was and that was it. And I was like, what but okay. I mess around with mechanics. You play with the numbers. It needs a bit more than that. What else does it need? Okay, well, it has to use the underrepresented superhero of the dice industry. That is the D12, right? Like, it's an amazing dice. It just rolls right, and it's great. Like, it's chunky, and it's a beautiful shape, and nobody uses them, right? And that was it. That's it. That's my, I have to make something thematic that works, that uses D12s and uses D3s. So, uh, frustratingly, I had a concept of a core mechanic in my head that needed to use D10s. Like, it had to use D10s. And so, I'm like, am I going to sacrifice the idea just to prove a point to myself that I can make the D12s? So, I, um, I, I initially dropped the D12 idea, and I built the rules around what my gut told me, which was the D10 mechanic. Anyway, I, I have a very good group of playtesters for role for role play games that I rely on. And um, I sent it out to them and they had some feedback about uh, some issues that they faced with the D10 and the way I had developed that system. And there was one interesting, there was one really obvious solution to the problem. And that was, to change the scale to 12 and use the D12. Isn't that funny? And sent it back to them. They're like, this is amazing. And I'm like, oh my God. So yeah, like I, I I forced myself to not just go down with the, use the cool dice route. Um, And I, unfortunately playtesting demanded that I use the cool dice. So obviously there's more to it than just picking the dice and stuff. You know, I've got a lot of experience. I've worked with a lot of systems. I've played a lot of systems and I am inspired by many of them. And I, you know, there are things I dislike about a lot of role play systems, which I was able to uh, identify what I don't like about them. And there are things I do like. And, and I, you know, I didn't spare any expense in time when it came to writing and testing the system that became known as 12.3, okay, mm-hmm. based on the dice. And um, I am, I, I think it's fair to say I am more proud of that system design than any other piece of games design that wow. I have ever worked on. That's saying a lot. Like, there's no disrespect to anything else that I've worked no. on, you know? Like, I... I've worked on some systems that I am very proud of, and we've talked about those already. But there's something about this system 
and people have played it. And obviously the guy complex is a small game still. You know, I've got a mailing list of about 600 people and I've sold maybe a thousand books around the world. Like all in, we're still very small fry. Yeah. And the amount of emails I've had from people just complimenting me on the design of the system has really shocked me. I'm like, does that happen in the games industry to people? Just no, feel the need to come and tell you no. that the system is awesome. And I, I, I'm just really humbled by people that want to tell me that. And I like, you know, come to me at a convention and say, oh, I, I'm not here to buy anything off you, but I, I have your game. I backed it on Kickstarter. And my group love your dice system. Like, we love it. And what are I'm they like, saying? No. What are they saying here, Chef? So what is it that, that like, what is it in 12.3 that is just making people be very vocal because th- the majority of people who like something say nothing right now, if they don't like it, they're going to let you know that's true of every, everything you create. But what is it that you are hearing from them that they are just, why is it clicking at such a rate? So things that I've heard a lot, um, being able to do a whole group's character creation in half an hour, yeah. like your session zero is 30 minutes. Um, without that being like, there's there's so much depth to the characters. Now, obviously, you can go away and write your character's backstory, but but you know stats, skills, nitty gritty, equipment. Like the longest part of character creation is choosing what you're going to spend your money on from the hardware catalog, mm-hmm. right? Because I spared no page count on having <laughs> a significant hardware catalog in that core book. So, um, like, but the core crux of the characters, like. You can go through the whole process with a large group, six, seven, eight players, be done in 30, 40 minutes, wow. start playing the game. Like that's huge for people when it is not necessarily the lightest system you've ever played. Yeah. It's not one where there's like three stats and then we just tell a story. Yeah. There is dice rolling involved. <laughs> so that's a big one. The other one is that the core mechanic, the core mechanic of the game just is super simple to explain. And it works really well. And the core mechanic is um, roll under your stat on 2D12. Yeah? If you have the relevant skill, you need one of those dice to be a success. Mm. And if you do not have the relevant skill, you need both of those dice to be the success. That is the core of the entire system. Nice. Okay? And everybody gets it. Stats generally run from 1 to 10. So an 11 always fails and 12 is like really, really, really bad. Yeah. And so the the basis is, oh, do I have the relevant skill? This is a test for awareness. Do I have the awareness skill? Yes. I need one of these dice to be a success. No, I need two of them to be a success. And you can play a whole session not needing any more rules than that. Wow. Okay. And the, the actual rules chapter of the book starts with a little half page rant from me that basically <laughs> says, um, hi. I'm Shep, and my ethos to game design is just only roll dice when you really need to. Like, I could quite happily play a session where you never roll a dice, but I am aware that role players do like to own and roll dice. So pick the mechanics in here that work for you and completely ignore the rest. Just do not compromise the story and the immersion and the experience for the rules ever. Please just play the game. So... I know people that have taken that core mechanic and just not bothered reading about the rest of the stuff. Interesting. Like I've got that core mechanic. I can see the damage statistic on a weapon. I'll make the rest work. Other people 
will take the whole lot. One thing I've been really keen to do, and this is the other thing that people have said to me, like what we really like is I have this like core rules for the game that are important that, you know, like how to do skill roles, what actions can be taken, how to resolve a combat, what, how you die, how you can speak a language, you know, ba- the basic things that people are going to ask. And then all the other rules are clearly labeled in the book as optional. Neat. You know, like they're like, here are the rules for hitting specific locations of the body. Here are the rules for bleeding. Here are the rules for ingesting toxins. Here are the rules for uh, put, setting your drones to go on like autopilot. Like, but they're all like, this is optional, big cool. optional word, you know? Like if you are a GM and a play group that like grit, you can throw everything in and have a moderately chunky system. If you are a play group that want to run a more narrative game, anything that says optional next to it doesn't exist. Just forget yeah. about it. You don't need it to play the game. I put it there for people that want more. And um, people are like, that's just so cool. Like we get to open the rule book and be like, this system's got a bit of meat to it, but, we can just ignore all of that stuff. Like I don't need to, there's rules for being knocked over and needing to get back up. And there's rules for, um, as, um, like morale. So the longer you're in a firefight, your morale goes down till eventually you bottle and freeze and have to hide until That's somebody cool. takes the rally action to help you get back on your feet. Um, and, um, so yeah, that's really good. And, and, I, and I think the last piece of feedback I get that's positive is that I've separated hit points, if we'll use that term, into two categories, which we call endurance and pressure. One mm. is physical damage and one is psychological damage. And both things can kill you or harm you. So uh, if you are the subject of some sort of hacking attempt, but also if you've suffered significant effects of low morale or you know various sort of more out there weaponry you can have significant psychological damage you can become subject to fears and you can you know or have actual physical brain damage inflicted that is one that is completely separate to physical harm and uh, it's really easily tracked Um, it's very clear what things harm what part of you and you know you can be uh, psychologically very stable, but on your last legs physically right. and vice versa. And people really like that addition because it isn't hard for them to follow, but adds a lot of kind of immersion to the, to the world. Yeah, definitely. So before we move on to talk about rectify one, one last thing I want to talk about with Gaia, which is um, it's really easy to spend a lot of time on the origin where it started easy to spend time on the middle, right? As you, as you refine things, what I really found interest, find interesting when I talked about, talked about creating things is how do you stop? So what was it that told you the core book's done pencils down, go into the printers? Yeah. How did you know you were done? (laughs) Um, because it was getting too expensive to print. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, in all honesty, um, the core book. Um, so I have a thing. I think RPG core books on the whole are too big. Interesting. Okay? I, I think once upon a time, the whole like four or 500 page core book was kind of like the norm. And like, man, it's just such a slog. 
getting through it and finding stuff and referencing. Oh, there was a piece. They said this somewhere in a story, but I'm never going to find it again. Um, and there was this wave a few years ago where people started to make much smaller books. And actually, when I was involved in Nightfall games, man, I, I like, I really, really, really sold the idea that we needed to keep that core book small for second edition, and and, and we did. And, yeah. I, and I and I really, really like that. And so I set myself this this thing here is like keep this core book fairly small but i have to tell this fiction i have to tell this story and it's a cyberpunk setting so it needs a lot of gear in it right right and i'm a big fan of hardware so the book is 288 pages i'd originally set my goal at 250 mm-hmm. um, but uh, there is 100 pages of hardware in in that wow. book okay now i wrote nearly 200 pages of hardware and the second hundred pages of hardware became the hardware 2119 source book which we released in february uh, well actually the, it's the first half of that source book the second half is uh, loads more much darker content that i would have loved to have evolved out on in the core book but did get to a point where i'm like this is too big yeah. i've got to listen to myself it's too big so what can come out and i started pruning the core book and putting content aside for future supplements is that easier or hard for you to do it's hard it was surprisingly easy for the hardware because there was so much of it and like you know what i don't need like 15 handguns in this book that's just ridiculous shit what you're doing right so that was fairly easy um but when it comes to evolving like the, the story and the background on the less normal parts of that world and i'm talking mm-hmm. like vampirism and the um the ferals which are like a sort of subspecies stroke underground they are huge they are they appear human in all ways except uh they are more prone to um sort of uh genetic mutations and they are able to imprint their consciousness into animals so they can crawl into a little coma somewhere and then play the rest of the session as a rat. Or Interesting. Like, you get to role play as an animal if you play a feral, which, which is a huge advantage, but as they also have some disadvantages to balance them out. But it makes some phenomenal role-playing experience. You know, like I saved up my money and I bought a genetically cloned snake and I am going to play as that snake. God damn it. You know, like yeah. it's pretty it's pretty cool. So we have an illustration in the Hardware 2119 book of a bear with four cybernetic arms <laughs> and i'm like somebody is playing that bear so um yeah like taking out the content of things which like support my meta plot which support the conspiracy of the world that was really hard and i ended up having to pick a theme and take out all the content on that theme Got it. and that that became the second half of hardware 2119 and that theme was the black market and the blood trade. Okay. Two mm. of the very darker point. I touched on them. I planted the seed in the core book. And then I gave myself half a source book to evolve that. Um, but sticking to page count was a big lesson learned for that core book. And so now with my source book working, when I start, I have a page count limit at the beginning. Right. I know how many words I get on a page without art. And 
uh, Hardware 2119 ended up at 128 pages. It was like 110, and then it went up with stretch goals. Uh, and I now know the recipe there works. So 128 pages is my max limit for a core book ever. Like, I'm going to say that now. Guy Complex is me. I do it my way. I will never go over 128 pages for a source book. Yeah. It means that I can create a book in a year, 18 months tops. It's uh, as a small publisher with a small product line. If you go silent for two or three years, it's dead. Yeah. yeah. So like 128 pages max. So let's say between 80 and 128 pages means a book a year for the guy complex going forward. Right. That's a recipe that is very important to me because I have a big story to tell and I love making that game and I want, I want to keep telling it. Oh, that's fantastic. Guys, we're going to take one more break. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about, I think there's a lot of reasons I want to chef on the show. Reading this game made it imperative that I get Shep on the show. We're going to talk about Rectify. I'll be, we'll be right back. Oh, uh, hey, it's me. Um, I'm interrupting this episode, and I hope you're enjoying it, and I bet you're anxious to hear the rest. But before we jump back, I need a favor. Do you know someone who might enjoy this episode? Can you shoot them a quick message or maybe even send them a link to it? Listeners sharing this podcast was the primary reason we almost doubled our audience last year. Also, would you like to see and hear these games in action? Go to the Third Floor Wars YouTube channel and Twitch stream. Our actual plays combine compelling role-playing, character-driven action, and system tutorials. We create great stories while lifting the hood and showcasing the game mechanics. Links to both are in the show notes. Okay, last thing, and I mean it. Have you rated this podcast on your pod platform yet? Maybe even written a short review? It is a simple way for you to be even more awesome than you already are. Okay, now I'm done. Let's jump back and listen to the rest of this episode. Um, so Shep, uh, mutual friend of ours, that's how we got connected. Uh, Anthony Boyd, uh, Runeslinger. Um, the conversation with Anthony started with Craig, have you heard anything about this rectify solo game? And I'm like, no, never heard of it. No idea. And he goes, let me tell you two things, right? Tells me two things about, it. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? So <laughs> you look, you gave me a little bit of a sneak peek, which I do appreciate, but everybody listening, um, if you're listening, when this is released, you know, the routine, right? The Kickstarter's out there. You've got the link. You're like, you got to check this damn thing out, but I want to talk about it. So let me give you the blurb first. Rectify is an immersive role-playing solo role-playing experience about facing death and atoning for the wrongs of an ill-spent life. Now, the ninja word in here is immersive. So that's where I want to start before we talk about where the hell this game came from. So how do you get off telling me that a solo role-playing game is immersive? What does that mean? Well, um, <laughs> Rectify is quite unique i think it's fair for me to say it's quite unique <laughs> it in is. the way that the game is played okay so it's a game of two halves um it is um i guess what mo many people would call a journaling game mm -hmm. on one hand you spend some time um 
creating a story through whatever means that may be the, um, uh, in, a, in a sort of mindfulness, self-meditative state. Um, though it is worth noting at this point that those states of mind and the whole process of mindfulness is generally to focus on very positive energies and outcomes. Rectify deliberately guides you to the darker corners of your mind. And I believe does an adequate job of providing the required safety tools to go with that. But still, it, it is um, deliberately pushing you to the darker uh, imagery that your mind may create. Right. And, and inevitably, whatever the experience ends up being, uh, in line with the scene that is described in the book, you will you will spend a little bit of time writing down your story and recording it yeah. in the future. So that 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 is not uh, that is in itself quite immersive. You are creating um, imagery and you're spending time with it. And we recommend using sensory deprivation to really enhance this. Whether that's just putting some earbuds in and them having complete silence and your eyes closed. I mean, um, we touched slightly off a call. Uh, off the call earlier on about like I, I'm actually a qualified uh, hypnotherapist, a mind coach. Um, like it's something I, I used to do for a living a long time ago, and and, and I still use those skills with families and friends. But um, the power um, to your imagination of just having your eyes closed for ten minutes mm. is unbelievable, like unbelievable. And so it, that that in itself is an immersive experience. However, that is not the reason I describe the game as being immersive. The reason I use that term is because Rectify um, explains that in this game, the player and their character are connected um, through a bizarre link and that actions that you take as Crate uh, will um, help to drive forward the story and in uh, impact and influence the, the 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 arc of what's happening. Okay, and what does that mean? Well, that means depending on the particular scenario, each of which has a theme, um, various what we call pledges should be carried out by uh, by the player. And these are obviously suggested. Anybody that isn't comfortable with doing so doesn't need to do so. You can treat this as a normal journaling game. Right. Um, and you can also, if you think you've got a better idea than the ones we suggest, go ahead. Um, they would range from anywhere from filling your mouth with red hot chilies and refusing to open your mouth until they've all been eaten, to having an ice cold bath, to walking out into a crowded public place and screaming something motivational at the top of your voice. Okay. Other things might be to, I know, call an ex-girlfriend or boyfriend and apologize for what went wrong in the relationship. Um, the, 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 the idea is to take you out of your comfort zone in a range right. of different ways, either for physical discomfort or emotional discomfort or, you know, uh, maybe a sense of embarrassment, though the game doesn't strive to belittle or humiliate anybody. Right. It may just be that that is the response that you feel that your character will best atone from. And so it, it wherever your mind takes you as to how you should achieve those pleasures is the way to go. And, and then you will roll the, the experience of that into what you're imagining with your character. And then you will record that experience. And, um, 
playtesting was interesting. I bet. Um, um, and feedback from people was just like jaw dropping. You know, they were like, I, I just didn't so? think I was. And people were, people were like, I didn't think I could create worlds like this. I didn't think I could imagine things. Just the journaling side was just really enlightening and scary at times, you know, where yeah. your mind can go and bringing up emotions. And, um, but yeah, the, the the whole physical pledging like filled me with a sense of fear and exhilaration mm. and i said to those people to all of them i asked the same question what experience in your life is that most like what does it remind you of the most and most people said it reminds me of watching my first horror movie Wow. Or, or an amazing horror movie. You know, the first movie that really scared me, that left, I went to bed that night and I slowed my breathing so I could hear what was in the room. And I'm like, you have just told me, like, that's the greatest compliment ever. I've created a solo horror role-playing game that's designed to take people out of their comfort zone and give them a lasting experience. And you're telling me it's like watching a horror movie. Like I am so proud of that feedback. Oh, and, that's cool. Um, so yeah, that is what immersive means. I, I believe this is a very unique uh, gaming experience. I am not firsthand aware of anything else that uses a similar process. I am aware of some phenomenal journaling games yep. um, that inspired me to create a journaling game. Um, but I, I'm not aware of anything that suggests you go and, you know, do this kind of stuff and record it and let uh, learn from it. And, um, I think that's really, really empowering. Yeah. I, I can tell you, I'm a huge consumer of, uh, of indie material. Um, uh, itch has more of my money than it should, because I just really enjoy, I buy for every 20 games I buy, I play one of them. I, I like to consume games. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, over time, you see a lot of the same things, maybe done in a very neat way, um, but it's now to the point in my life um, where it's pretty hard to show me something I haven't seen before. Now, I haven't seen everything, so I can't tell you that this is 100% unique. I'm sure there's somebody listening going, yeah, uh, Greg Stafford created this back in 1978, but um, I've never seen anything like it. So I, I, I really, my big question is the pledge concept. The meta mm -hmm. connection between player and character. Was that at the very beginning? Did it come later? Like when did that bomb drop and what did it look like when it first hit? So to answer that question, I should probably tell you where the where, when, and how I made the game. Let's do it. Like wrote it. So okay, so the the original spark the inspiration behind the game came from a couple of things, a couple of sources. The first was the work of two particular artists. Um, one, uh, his name is David and his surname eludes me and I apologize, but he owns a small clothing company in uh, London, in the UK called Lamort Clothing. I'm actually wearing one of his t-shirts right here. You can see it on the video. Um, and he makes phenomenal occult 
artwork like phenomenal uh you know like skeletons and knights in armor and like twisted imagery like absolutely mind-blowing to the point that if he releases a t-shirt i buy it plain and simple wow. like just done deal like my wardrobe is basically a lamort clothing <laughs> warehouse um so and the other is um an artist that my my little sister made me aware of she's an illustrator herself and yeah she's a a fan of this this uh, chap's work on um on instagram a guy called albinus design um and he does a lot of biro on paper artwork Mm. and it's very dark very occult um so those two i i i I had this thing in my brain, like I was really inspired by that artwork and I really wanted to make a game that that could use that black and white like artwork. Like I just, I knew that the, like I, I've always had this thing about the whole kind of like angels and demons, heaven and hell. I'm not a religious person. Right. I don't think about those concepts in a religious context, but um, you know, movies like Constantine and role play games like Innomine that we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. and I guess Cult, like the, the concept of humans and demons and angels walking on the like that. It's something about that. It's, I, mean, I have yeah. full length wings tattooed down my back, like I actually do, because that concept excites me. And I felt like I could do something that used that style of occult artwork that was very dark, that would play into the sort of horror edge writing that I had done for Slay Industries. Right. And like, I didn't know what that game would be. But I knew it needed to have this style of art, which meant it needed to be not a futuristic game. It needed to be like a present day thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one aspect of it. And the, the other aspect of, that really, really inspired me, and a lot of people might think this is really weird, is, is a movie, a movie which many people consider to be a bit shit. So it's a movie called uh, As Above, So Below. It is a, a horror movie. Uh, quite a low budget sort of found footage horror movie, you know, like the Blair okay. Witch. It's all on camcorders, yeah. And it's about a group of people who are like, I think there's a really background brushed over storyline about a, a girl who is a, like a, a dad was like a archaeologist and she wanted to follow in his footsteps and find some artifact. But anyway, her and some friends persuade some people to give them to break them into the catacombs under Paris. You know, mm. the skeleton filled tunnel network. Yeah. Um, and they are, and they do. And whilst they are in there, they find themselves trapped in an escapable loop. And the only way they can go is down mm. further into the catacombs. And they do. And eventually, long story, which I won't spoil the whole thing, but they find that they have basically breached the gate to hell which is in the Paris catacombs and they have to try and claw their way back out. And that, that movie people were like, yeah, you know, it's a found footage movie. It's a bit, but there's something about it. And I can't really explain what it is. I think the performances are pretty good. And the, the the imagery is okay. Um, But there's something about it that is really, that really inspired me, like really inspired me. And they even use the term at the end of the movie, like we need to rectify to like get out of here. And I was, and, and I, I watched that movie and I was like, okay, something in my brain has just happened. <laughs> I need to just, I need to just 
sit on this for a few days. And 24 hours later, I watched the movie again. Like, I couldn't not watch it again. And I enjoyed it more the second time around. And I was like, okay, this vibe is like, holy crap. I have, I'm at the gates of hell and I need to claw my way out paired with the artwork that I, the, the occult imagery that I was really inspired by. I was like, I have to make this happen. And I just kind of sat on the idea for a little bit. Um, and the, I'm not quite sure at what point the physical pledging came into it, mm-hmm. but, um, I went away, um, uh, just over a year ago now would have been sort of April time. Uh, me and my now wife went away on our honeymoon. Uh, and we went to Iceland and we went to Iceland for 10 days and we hiked on, um, glaciers and Iceland is incredibly beautiful and incredibly bleak at the Mm. same time and at the time we were there they were on like 22 hours of daylight a day and i'm not the greatest sleeper because i have a a hyperactive creative mind and whilst the curtains were blackout like i I wasn't really working for me my wife can sleep through a war so she was gone so i actually wrote the whole of rectify start to finish on my honeymoon, get out. Reflective of the day of exploring these shifting glaciers, I wrote the whole thing in the early hours of the morning on my iPhone, on the notes on my iPhone, start to finish, and over the course of about ten days. And then I came home and I edited the horrendous typos and spelling mistakes through the through the what we'll call a manuscript, and I just read it all back and i was like man this is really good like Mm. this is really good um and then i sent it out to some people to play test it before and i was like i just need feedback is this just really out there and when people came back to me they were like what have you made like isn't that and I, had, I had some really trusted friends people that i i work with in the industry some f- fantastic writers themselves and i gave it to the people beyond my normal playtest group and they came back to me and were like shep I, I don't actually know how i really feel about this game like some of it makes me feel uncomfortable and i'm like is it inappropriately uncomfortable like if this was commercially available like are people going to complain about what i've made and they're like no no i just I don't, I don't know if I can finish the last part of the game. I've done like the first four trials and I can't do the last one. It's, and I'm like, okay, okay. I think that's positive from what I'm trying to achieve. It could be disastrous, but I think that's positive. And, um, I'm like, okay, this has to look right now. So I actually got in touch with the Albinus design on Instagram, the guy who, whose artwork had inspired me. And I'm like, I need six exceptionally detailed images. One is a cover and five represent the five trials of hell I'm going to put people through. And I need them hand drawn, you know, ink on paper in immense detail in your style. Can you do it? And he was like, yeah, give me the text. I need to be inspired by what you've made. And he, mm-hmm. he read rectify and and then he was like yeah i'm yeah i'm in let's do it 
cool so um, he made the, the 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 cover image for us, and then the trial the artwork that represent the trials, which is the mouth, the throat, uh, the gut, the river of blood, and the pit, which is like is basically the anus of hell, and um, and the artwork is phenomenal, like spine tinglingly phenomenal and um yeah you know and i was like okay this has just got to be you know the graphic design i know you've had eyes on it and at this point um people that listening to this may well have done as well through the campaign you know you've got this whole black and white flip every page like it splits in the middle and goes from white text on black to black on white and it's very like everything was done all the the, the graphic design i did to just try and reflect the mood and the, the what's happening, like the whole concept. Um, and it, it's a little game at the end of the day, you know, it's not right. a big hardback book. It's an A5 format soft book. Uh, you know, it's 36 pages and it comes with a small journal for you to record, you know, a thematically designed journal for you to, um, to write in. It, but the content and the things that happen from those 36 pages are like, you know, like I'm bigging it up, right? It's my game, but I feel like it's an experience that a lot of people that have played solo role play games, and there's some phenomenal games out there, Artifact, um, you know, Nick's uh, Colossal that's done really well on Kickstarter. There's some stunning games out there to immerse yourself in. And I, uh, I hope that people that have played those games will pick this up and feel like this is something very new for them was it a solo game from the very beginning when you were writing in your honeymoon absolutely yeah Yeah. it was always a solo game and i think that's because i i've recently played through colossal and and i really loved what um what uh nick had created in that game like that's a really cleverly done world i'm a big fan of that kind of small a5 format half us letter format um stuff you know you've got like morkborg and uh Mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of other games out there that uh, you've uh, kids on bikes and there's a lot of games in that small format that i like i really like that format for the role play game industry like i know it's they typically it takes a lot for games in that format to be huge commercial hits but from an indie standpoint, it's something I really love about that almost zine-sized yep. release. And um, so I, I felt that I had to just stick to my guns and do that because that would do it for most, like it would suit it the most. Also, like it would make the art cheaper because it would be smaller pieces. Because, um, you know, as anyone who works in the industry will know, artwork is not cheap and nope. good artwork is definitely not cheap. Yeah, and nor should it be, right? I mean, that's that's absolutely you know they they deserve every penny of that. Um, whenever I talk to somebody, Shep, that is in, so we're talking before the Kickstarter launches. Uh, this is being released um, for those of you listening right after release. The Kickstarter's live. Scroll down, you know the whole routine. What I always find interesting, and I get a different answer almost every time. Where is the game? Is it done? And now we're doing the Kickstarter. Or are we going to work on it during the Kickstarter or are we going to close the Kickstarter and there's a lot to work to be done? Give me a sense of how baked this is. It's done. hundred yeah. percent. It's print ready. The game is done. The artwork is done. The layout is done. The graphic design is done. The proofreading is done. The file prep is done. Wow. Um, the 
only thing so basically I, I make it explicitly clear on the Kickstarter and anybody that's listening to this at this point will have no likely seen the Kickstarter or be about to jump onto it um, I make it very clear on there that this game is not a game that will be uh, enhanced by uh, me jamming more content in the book or releasing play aids or giving you a you know a nice branded coaster to put your coffee cup on it's just, I, I don't do that kind of stuff um the game is is available as the game with the journal and you can purchase extra journals if you want to keep them for recording more you can just use a piece of paper for all i care right. like that the experience is playing the recording is a bonus um and uh yeah the, the game is done and the kickstarter is going to raise funds to manufacture it print it get it out into distribution hopefully and um the uh the only stretch goals that i'll be running will be the some physical upgrades to the print quality that being i'm starting at a phenomenal print quality and i am prepared to push up paperweights cover weights maybe a nice finish on the cover but nothing that involves touching the content of this book that's, huge. That, that's actually something that i'm really passionate about like it's a hard thing for me to be able to follow through on with my work with other publishers but for myself you know we've run two campaigns for the gaia complex uh two so two two different books that have come out both times those books were entirely written and artwork was over 75% complete before I went to Kickstarter. The only writing I did was uh, for when I unlocked additional pages of content on stuff. And I'd already storyboarded what that would be. Cool. I just decided if you unlock the stretch goals, I'll write it and put it in this book. And if you won't, it will go in the next book. It's going to get written eventually anyway. So, um, yeah, you know, we fulfilled both campaign the first campaign actually fulfilled a month late because uh covid happened um and the, 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 the source book um the source book was scheduled for fulfillment in february just gone and we fulfilled in december before christmas unbelievable so like in in the current marketplace to be delivering on time or early like but that's because I just hold off on going to Kickstarter until I'm like, I don't want to running a Kickstarter is a huge investment of time. Even if it's a little tiny Kickstarter, like a, like in zine quest, I ran my Kickstarter for Kendo Koala and friends, a really silly, tiny little game, 16 pager that I made, you know, we got like 50 backers and we just a tiny little campaign. Yeah. Still, you have to be dedicated. Every single yeah. person is important. And, um, you know, I don't want to be thinking I need to write and work. Like I, I need to, I need to be on Kickstarter mode, not creator mode during right. the course of a campaign. And afterwards, you know, when it's your own stuff and you're a one man band and you've got, you know, the print file prep and then you've got the manufacturing and you've got to sort out fulfillment and the incoming goods to the country. And then, you know, like I think, I think you need a few months to focus on the business side of a Kickstarter. And I think a lot of creators, like pass that up and they run into difficulty because they are like wanting to get back to the creative process and they take their yeah. eye off the ball a little bit. It's a story we've heard before uh, more, more yeah. times than I, than I wish. And it's more, it tends to be more naivete, not bad intentions, right? It's uh, just not, not understanding it. So last but not least, Shep, one of the things that I do at the very end of all my uh, interviews is I 
put an end cap on it. We've gotten your origin story. We've learned so much in the process up, up to and including the newest things that you've created. The end cap I want to put on here is you make, you make, you make. Other people are consuming, consuming, and consuming, right? I want to know what you consume. So we've touched on it a little bit, but I want to know, is there anything recently that's gotten its hooks into you the way the stuff you've made has gotten its hooks into other people? So what is there anything recently that has taken over your life? It could be a video game, a board game, a book, a movie, something that you couldn't shake, you couldn't get out of your head. Yeah, interesting question. Um, so ooh, I've seen quite a lot of good TV recently. Like, Let's talk about it. Um, I, I've only, I've literally just started watching. I'm, a, I'm very late to the game. I know everyone else that. I've just started watching uh, The Last of Us. Oh so, yeah. And you know, we're a couple of episodes in, and um, I know this is a, a big hit for me. Um, so episode three, have you watched it yet? Uh, that's tonight. Episode three. We've okay. watched the first two. Yeah. So please don't just. No, I'm not going to. I'm not going to uh, say a goddamn word. Just send me an email when yeah. you're done. That's all I'm okay. going to ask. Yeah, yeah. We'll speak tomorrow. Um. So yeah. So that that's definitely going to be a big hit. I mean, like, it, I'm. It's going to be hard not to say shout about the Mandalorian, right? Because yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge Star Wars fan, and uh, I always have been since I was a child. Um, it's a big influence to me in, in a lot of ways and um what John, John Favreau and Dave Filoni and the crew have done with the Mandalorian and the recent TV offshoots of Star Wars stories yeah. are, are just frankly fantastic not not that you know the movies themselves are fantastic but yeah. what they've done is next level and and that has inspired me a lot um, I mean, since watching the last season of The Mandalorian, we our, my regular games night, I, I've been running a um, West End game, Star Wars, RPG Second Edition, Star Wars campaign. <laughs> that brings back memories. Um, usual dark twist. Um, so we've been we've been playing Star Wars, and actually, in the last few weeks, me and my in-house gaming buddies that are my boys have been playing huge amounts of star wars x-wing 2.0 oh um, nice like we got it back out and we struggled to stop playing we were like literally after school they come home after school we, we must we must play x-wing two games a night minimum wow. like every day we have this little tro- i'm going to show you we got a little mandalorian keyring here oh, this is amazing. our trophy and whoever wins the most recent game takes this. And my <laughs> my oldest son, Oscar, is on a, a six-game win streak. And we have a little, like, once you win a game, you can't change your fleet list until somebody beats it. Ooh. So he's on six games straight with the same list. And, like, we like it's really competitive. And we play it, like, but for it to... But for something to make you want to get a board game out or a war game out or something like, oh, we have a lot of games. Yeah. You get something out and you're like, what do you want to do tonight? Do you want to watch a movie? Do you want to, you know, no, we want to, we want to beat Oscar X Wing. Like that's oh, all that's we care fun. about now. God, that's so fun. That's really, really huge. Um, so yeah, like The Mandalorian has done big things for me, um, and also, like it's very clear to me. I'm a big fan of the cyberpunk genre and the dark right. dystopian side of things. Um, the, uh, whilst it's been some months since I watched it, my brain keeps going back to the peripheral. Um, it was on Amazon. It's uh, based on the William Gibson 
uh, novel, which I'm a big fan of William Gibson's work. My God, I've, I don't know um, nothing about this. I mean, it's a, I, I, I think it's a, a phenomenal piece of work that they oh, wow. uh, they created. Um, it does a good job of representing the technology and the concepts of the novel. It, like most television series, it does take its liberties on changing content. It's a different but medium. I, I believe that that series took um, sort of storytelling of that genre to a next level. Like I was a huge fan of Altered Carbon when that came out. Um, the first season in particular, the second season yeah. didn't really make me tick so much. Same. Um, and whilst Altered Carbon is a lot more action-packed, than something like the peripheral, which is much more about the, the characters and the story. Like it'd been a long time since I'd seen something with a cyberpunk flavor that got me excited. And I literally couldn't wait for the next episode. And I, and I think they did a phenomenal job of the peripheral, like a really phenomenal job. I would recommend oh, it to, cool. to anybody. So that, that inspired me to open the laptop and write into the early hours of the morning again with a guy, complex content. So anything that does that is a really yeah. big hit is a really big hit for me. So I would say, yeah, that's things. great. And, I, and, and I, I, this week has been a bit silly because there's so much new cool stuff has come out. Because obviously, you know, I've just finally got round to being able to watch The Last of Us, and then the the the, the Witcher started yesterday yep. on Netflix, and I got that. I can't you know, not enough time. <laughs> so um, I'm like wondering if I can send the kids away somewhere for a few <laughs> days so I can just binge watch some TV. So yeah, that they 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 TV and X Wing is what's inspiring me at the moment. So two things real quick, based off of from the Star Wars aspects, uh, you mentioned the Mandalorian. Did you watch Andor? Oh, of course. I, okay, I, okay. I've seen, watched, read, played. If it's got Star Wars written on it, I probably have digested it. Andor was phenomenal. Unbelievable. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like that's a whole new spin on the world that we know, you know, like what does it look like to be a civilian? What does yes. it look like to be? one of the office workers in the galactic yep. Republic, the, sorry, the, the um, yep. empire. And you're like, yeah, this is, this is new and it's gritty and it's dark and it's a, a new level, like a different mature way of telling those stories. Yep. Uh, yeah. Like absolutely fantastic. And uh, you get a really, really, really good look at the quad jumper, which is one of my favorite ships in the whole of star Wars. <laughs> and one I'm very keen of flying in X wing. So I was oh, really that's excited. Great. Well, that's All right. And then from a sci-fi aspect, um, the expanse. Yeah. Weirdly, everything about the expanse should be something that I utterly love. Yeah. But I really struggled, um, getting through the first season and I never started season two. Now a few people have said to me, "Push through, man! It's a slow burn. You yes. like it's just like Breaking Bad was. You think, yep. am I going to like this? But eventually, you're hooked. And so, The Expanse is on my um, good list of next time my family go away for a weekend, yep. I am going to binge watch the crap out of it to the point that I currently have an Expanse screensaver on my MacBook to remind me yeah. that I have to revisit it. You, yeah." I, People ask me this a lot, like, what do you think of Expanse? And I'm always like, well, I don't know. I thought it was okay. You know, other things I've watched were okay and they might have got better. I just get, I gave up too early. It took me three, three tries to get through season one. 
Okay. And then all the advice you've been given is correct. Um, I think it's one of the greatest TV shows ever made. And I struggled at the beginning, just like you did. Here's the thing that I'm going to put in there to, to hopefully push you to get through it is it is so hard to stick the landing on a show so hard to get the last season right and so hard to get the last episode right. And they killed it. The last season is phenomenal. The last episode, it was over. I didn't want to watch it because I didn't want the show to be over. And it went to the end credits. And I remember sitting there going, I'm completely satisfied. This yeah. didn't this didn't do what I thought it was going to do, but all of it made sense. I am happy. They never have to do anything else. And like, that's not easy to do, man. As a creator and a writer, you know that. I can't think of many TV shows where I felt that after, especially after a multi-series run. Mm -hmm. Like, I think maybe if somebody said to me now, what's the best series end you can think of? Maybe Justified. Nice. I I don't disagree with that. That's a good call. So so that'll be one more reason for you to go to explore it. Um, Shep, there's a lot of really fun things to do on a Saturday night, which includes playing X-Wing with your kids. Uh, But you wasted two hours talking to me and I appreciate it. No, thank you so thank you so much for you know asking me to come on and talk about my past and my games and, and talk about rectify it, it means a lot I am really humbled and honored to to for you to have taken that interest in me I thank you so much I really appreciate oh, it and, and at some point I'm gonna I'm gonna trick you into coming back on again it'll be a pleasure all right hey for those of you listening you know the rules scroll down click all the links they're all there waiting for you everything that we've talked about but more importantly, You sat through the whole thing. This is the end. And I appreciate you too. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Subscribe to Tabletop Talk and share it with your friends. Check out our content on YouTube and Twitch. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and stay updated on everything coming from Third Floor. All the links are in the show notes. Take care, Floorheads. Uh, Oh, hey. Are you still here? Wow. Um, Well, the episode is over, but if you're bored... Why not go to Patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month? Yeah, you can just scroll down. Scroll down and, yeah, get the link. It's Patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible. Don't you want to join the other floorheads on the Patreon Discord? Anyway, thanks for sticking around. Take care. Bye.